If you've been listening to my show for a while, you know how I like to talk about a gut biome test. I call it a fancy poop test. It's a fancy name for a poop test. And it's going to tell us what the ecosystem is in your gut. And why that's important is since food's the best medicine, it's going to tell us, here are your superfoods just for you to eat. Here are the foods for you to avoid. And here's everything else. Eat this a lot. Eat this a little. Now, my team has been very busy and they got an amazing deal. For anybody that wants to do this test, you can do it at home. You don't need a doctor's orders. All you have to do is just go to Viome, V as in Victor, I-O-M as in Mary, E.com, Viome.com. And at checkout, use the secret code, Julie Ryan, and you'll get more than 50% off. Don't put any spaces in there, just Julie Ryan. It's an amazing test. It's going to give you tons of information. I've done it several times myself, and you're going to be thrilled with the information you get because it'll give you a program just for you. Give it a whirl. Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm Julie, your host, and I'm so delighted you could join us this week. My intention in doing this show is to provide information, insight, and comfort to people all over the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And we have such a treat. I have such a treat for you guys this week. I've got Father Sean Olera. Did I say that right? You got it right on. Okay, Olera with us. And he is just an extraordinary guy. You guys are going to love him. And I've asked him to join us because we've got lots to talk about. So welcome, Father. Thanks a million, Julie. Just thrilled to have you. Everybody, let me tell you about this guy. He's amazing. Father Sean Olera, born in Ireland, is a priest a scientist, and a psychologist. What a combo platter that is. Father Sean has a bachelor's degree in mathematics and a master's and PhD in transpersonal psychology. Ordained a Catholic priest in 1972, he spent 14 years working in Kenya. Father Sean is fluent in six languages and has written six books. Today, Father Sean is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice is the co-founder and spiritual director of a non-denominational community called Companions on the Journey in Palo Alto, California, and conducts research on the intersection of scientific inquiry and mystical spirituality. Wow. Sorry, you're such an underachiever. (laughs) Goodness. It keeps me off the streets and out of trouble. Oh, my heavens. Well, welcome. Welcome to, to the show. In your book, Setting God Free, which is terrific, I happen to have one right here. In your book, Setting God Free, I have your other books too. You say everyone is potentially a mysticist. And you go on to say, quote, the mystical impulse is the umbilical cord connecting us to source, end quote. 
What's a mysticist? Is that a vocabulary word you invented? Yes, it is. So for me, it's the uh, it's the cross fertilization of mystic and scientist, or mystic and physicist. It's what, um, in some senses, what Carl Jung called a Gnostic intermediary. He had this term that somebody who is conversant with two very different systems and can cross fertilize them to their mutual benefit. So he called that a Gnostic intermediary. So I think of people like, for instance, Teilhard de Chardin, who was a brilliant paleoanthropologist, a Jesuit priest, and a mystic. And I really believe that the evolutionary trajectory that took us from, you know, Homo habilis to Homo erectus to Homo, you know, um, at this stage, Homo sapiens sapiens, I think it's trifurcating at this stage. I think one branch is going to what I call Homo sociopathicus, who are, who are you know, led by greed and by control. The other group is Homo artificialis, you know, um, people who are in danger of becoming robotic, you know, uh, programmed and 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 uh, hacked individuals in the service of Homo sociopathicus. And then thirdly, Homo spiritualis, people who really realize that they're bite-sized pieces of God, that every single one of us is a holographic fractal of source. And a hologram is an entity that contains the entirety of the original in every one of the subcomponents. So if you took a holographic photograph and cut off a corner, and you shone a laser light on the little corner, all of the data contained in the original photograph are contained in the subsection. And a fractal is simply a pattern that repeats at an infinite number of scales. And so every soul is a holographic fractal of God. And so the mysticist is somebody who realizes that. And so we, you know, it's about disidentifying with the ego and re-identifying with the source self. So I think there are three stages to the process. There's the role self, you know, our incarnated spirit in the spacesuit, with which we tend to identify. We think we are our bodies, or we think we are our emotions, or we think we are our professions, or we think our, we are our relationships, and we're not. That's a role we're playing in a particular incarnation. So that's the role self. And then comes what I call the soul self, the eternal fractal of source, which is every individual soul. And then ultimately there is the source self. There is only God, the utterly transcendent, ineffable, inarticulatable uh, mystery, which we can experience, but we can't we can't articulate. And so the journey of the species for me, if we can keep it together, is to move from being just Homo spirit Homo uh, sapiens sapiens to Homo spiritualis, to identifying with our soul, soul self and ultimately our source self. And so the mysticists then for me are a transitionary stage that are bringing really great science together with mystical uh, theology rather than kind of scientism, you know, with fundamentalist religion. You know, fundamentalist religion and scientism have created a God-shaped hole in the human psyche. And the mysticists are the movement that will unite true science with true mysticism. And that, for me, I believe, is, is the next stage of the human evolution. I call that science catching up with woo-woo. I love it. I love it. The woo-woo has been around for a really long time. A long time. The, the interesting thing about this is that when I connect with somebody to do a medical scan and healing, I watch a laser beam come from my body wherever I am right. and hook into the person wherever they are. You could be on Mars. It doesn't matter. I'm going to find you. And then I have a hologram of them in my mind's eye. And I believe it's my spirit connecting with their spirit. So it goes right in along those lines of what you just explained. Everybody's 
we're made in the image and likeness of God. And so everybody's a fractal. I love that. Everybody's a fractal of spirit, God, source, divine source, whatever you want to call God, the energy. And so that makes total sense. For those of you that are watching on YouTube, I want you to watch around Father Sean because the way the sunlight's coming in, it's it's showing your aura and wow. it's really big and it goes on from the side of your chair up over your head and over to the other side of your chair. And as you move, it moves. And as you're talking, it gets bigger. And I don't see that very often, you know, when I'm talking to somebody, especially on camera. So for those of you that are listening on a podcast or on the radio, be sure and check the YouTube video of Father Sean, because it's really dramatic and very visible from my perspective, from how I'm seeing it. Did you grow up in a deeply spiritual family? I had a very interesting background as a little child, Julie. I was the, um, the firstborn of a firstborn of a firstborn. And so I actually lived with my grandparents for the first six years of my life. And my great-grandmother was still alive. I couldn't pronounce her name, so I called her Muddy, and it, and it stuck, no pun intended. And she was a, like a Christian mystic. She was a tiny, rotund little woman. She was as wide as she was tall. And um, she, she had a, this extraordinary relationship with Mother Mary. And they would talk nonstop. And I was privy to these conversations, although I could only hear one side of it. But I presumed that this was normal. And she would talk to Mary throughout the day. And so she had this extraordinary devotion to Mary. And then at age six, I went back to live with my parents. And I lived then with my uh, maternal grandparents. And the grandfather was called Daddy Jim. I called him Daddy Jim. And he was the nearest thing to a druid. He was a, a brilliant Irish step dancer. He was the best storyteller I've ever come across. And he was a great musician. And so he filled me up with all of the ancient Irish mythology. And so it's like I had these two traditions fusing kind of um, mystical Christianity on one side and Celtic Druidism on the other side. And so it's like somehow I managed to kind of uh, integrate those two pieces. And when I went to Kenya finally and then lived in a kind of almost like biblical terrain, literally, it is part of the Rift Valley that runs right up through Kenya and right up into Israel. I felt like I was back 2000 years ago in Jesus' time. And so I was now picking up the kind of the kind of the mythology of Israel and the mythology of Africa and the mythology of Ireland, you know, and trying to um, weave those into a, a kind of a, a mandala consisting on the fourth piece would have been uh, Christian mysticism. So that was kind of the, the initial start. What's what's a mystic to you? For me, what does that mystic, mean to you? Right. And so last Sunday, for instance, I was talking about, I got this notion of uh, a three-dimensional cross. When I think of the cross of Jesus, you know, although it was the instrument on which he died, it is not primarily about the kind of an instrument of torture. It, the two arms of the cross for me, the vertical arm represents the connection between the imminent, the manifested, you know, uh, and the transcendent. So it's the connection between earth and heaven. And the horizontal arm of the cross represents, you know, the uh, brotherhood and sisterhood of all beings, what Native American Indians will call all my relations. And the intersection point is the individual kind of split of consciousness that I call me. But I came up last week with a new version. It's three-dimensional uh, cross. And so what I ask people to imagine, imagine you're in a room and you're looking at the, the, the bottom corner of the room where the floor meets the two side walls. So you've got three axes. So let's say as you're looking at the bottom corner, the line that joins one wall to the, to the floor, you're going to call that the X-axis. 
and the one on the other side you call the y-axis, and the vertical one you call the z-axis. Now, for me, the z-axis represents, you know, self-awareness. Where on the scale of self-awareness do I lie? Am I totally identified with my ego? Are my just my thoughts or emotions or the job I do? Or have I managed to go right up to uh, an identification with my soul self or even source self? So the mystic is the person who's walked a long, long, long way that trajectory. Then the right-hand axis, the x-axis, I would call it compassion. And again, you know, compassion goes all the way from a kind of um, pathological narcissism on one side to the Mother Teresa's at the other end. And the y-axis for me represents then uh, free will. And there's a big difference between free will and freedom. Free will is the ability to do as pleases me. Freedom is the ability to do as pleases God. So the only truly free person is the person who's constantly making choices for love. So then I looked at these three axes and I say, where, you know, in the room would a Jesus figure lie? And he'd be right up at the back corner. He would have maxed out in all three axes. Where would a Mother Teresa be? Maybe somewhere near the top. Where would like a Hitler be? He'd be in the bottom corner right over there with no compassion, no freedom in the sense because he's driven by his own greed and no self-awareness because he's identified with, with power. So the mystic then for me is a person who's made significant progress along all three axes and is identifying with a, a source level of self or a, a soul level of self who's filled with compassion for all beings and at the same time is truly free because they're not addicted you know, to power or privilege or prestige. And so that would be the ultimate mystic, maybe a Meister Eckhart or a Francis of Assisi. Yeah. Spoken like that triple uh, quality that you are, a mathematician, a spiritual guy, and a psychologist. You just combined all three of those different genres into that example. Well done on that. When did you know you wanted to become a priest? Was there a catalyst? Did you just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to go join the seminary? Or did you, how did that come about? It came about actually in my second last year in high school. I was a really good athlete. I played an Irish game called hurling, if you've ever heard of it. A real ancient game. It goes back to 1297 BCE. And it's played with a stick, like a hockey stick, and a, a ball that's traveling about 95 miles an hour. So I was a really good athlete. So I knew I wanted to go to the seminary, but I was really embarrassed about it. I was afraid to kind of tell my schoolmates. And uh, the clincher for me was, priests would come around from different missionary congregations, you know, talking about where they lived. And there was this one guy came came along called Liam McSorley, and he was from St. Patrick's Missionary Society. And there was something about this guy. He was smoking a pipe, and every so often, he'd scratch his head with the stem of the pipe and then put it back into his mouth. But there was something about his energy. You know, so I started writing to him, and I went through the process of, you know, being accepted. And then the problem came. I finished high school, and I would be going to the seminary in September, but I still hadn't told my parents. I came from a very poor family, and I needed 10 shillings, which was about $4, to have a full medical to make sure I was a real boy. So I go to my mother and I say, um, I need 10 shillings. And she says, what do you need 10 shillings for? I said, I need to go to the doctor. What's wrong with you? There's nothing wrong with me. Why are you going to the doctor? There's nothing wrong with you. Uh, uh, I need to get a full medical examination. Why do you need a full medical examination? Because I'm going to be joining the seminary in September. So that was the first thing, first time I told my parents. And so I kind of like kept it under my hat for two years. 
But every single morning, when I was cycling to school, I lived about four miles away from the, the school. And I'd cycle to school and go to Mass on the way. And I was deeply embarrassed about that. So that was kind of a secret. And on the way home every day, I'd stop at the same church and I'd do the Stations of the Cross. And so um, I, I was trying to feed myself in some way because it was really, really deeply attractive. But I knew I didn't want to be a priest in Ireland. I wanted more adventures than that. I wanted to live in, in the tropics. I wanted to be surrounded by wild animals and, and pagans whom I could save from hell. <laughs> I love that. The reason I ask is my father graduated from the Gregorian University in Rome, wow. Wow. which is a seminary where popes and saints and, you know, these guys have all gone. And he went on the GI Bill after World War II. Wow. And Pius Twelfth was in office. So this yes. was right after World War II. Mm. And when he passed in 2006, and we were going through all of his stuff, I have six years. He left six months before he was to be ordained. Wow. Yeah. And I tell people that I appeared to him in a dream. And I said, Dad, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not going to have me. You're not going to have my siblings. What are you thinking? And he says he didn't remember it happening that way. And actually, Archbishop Griffin, who was head of the San Francisco Archdiocese, oh, yeah. were, you st- were you there at the time no. when he was there? This was no. probably in the 80s. I, he tra- was a- I, trained, I trained in Ireland, in County Wicklow. In the, in the 80s, though? In, in the uh, 1980s? No. I went in in, the, in uh, 1964 and was ordained in 1972. Okay. So anyways, Griffin was one of his classmates, and these cardinals were his classmates and all that. So anyways... When I after he passed, I was going through all these letters back and forth between his family and him when he was in the seminary, he lived at the North American College in Rome. And I found a letter from his father to him on his first birthday. And it had a five, apparently he had attached a $5 bill to this letter, which was a big bunch of money in 1927. That was uh, a lot. Wow. And he, at the end of the letter, he said, I pray every day for your vocation to the priesthood. Wow. Now, Ryan Irish, right? My grandfather and grandmother were putting into my dad's head out of his first birthday that they were praying for him to have a vocation to the priesthood. And I thought, that's some serious pressure. Pressure, absolutely. And in the letters when he had decided to leave the seminary and come home, and he'd already graduated with his master's from the Gregorian, that was his biggest fear. It wasn't not being a priest. It was disappointing the family. And I just wonder how many other families. I mean, I, I had no idea about that. We'd never talked about it when he was alive. And so it was interesting to me when I thought, I wonder how many other families, maybe not so much now, but back in the day, would put those ideas into their kids' heads that they had a, a, a vocation. And maybe it was a true vocation, but it but they were fostering it. Yes. Yes. Did you come across that? I think it sounds like you were of the the generation where that was not being done so much. It wasn't been done at that stage, but there was actually a term in Ireland for that. It was called having a mother's vocation. So it's that the mother wanted the son to be a priest. So it was like in a typical Irish family, if it was a farming family, for instance, the eldest son would always inherit the farm. So that was a given. So he couldn't be a priest because he needed to inherit the farm. And then one of the sons had to be a priest. You know, another son had to be, if they could manage it, a school teacher. And the other guy had to be a policeman. You know, and one of the daughters had to be a nun. 
So like you would typically get eight or nine kids and it was mapped out. This was the expectation for each of them. But for the for the priest, it was called having the mother's vocation that there so many go. guys went in because that was the expectation from the time that they were knee-high to a grasshopper. Well, and, and it carried over here mm. in yeah. 1927 when my dad turned one. Right. So, yeah. yeah, interesting. And my grandfather was a pharmacist. So oh, he okay. he uh, was well-educated too. Okay, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? So for me, religion is the training wheels for spirituality. I mean, literally, um, religion has a, has a very important function to play. It creates community. It create it should create great liturgy. It should be able to help people to uh, intentionally and individually reach altered states of consciousness. I mean, so every religion is founded with some kind of a mystical impulse. But inevitably, and this is true not just of religions, but I see it of all great organizations, whether they're charitable foundations or whatever, it goes through the following stages. You get some extraordinary avatar, a charismatic individual, like a Jesus or a Buddha, a Gautama Siddhartha figure. Almost inevitably, at some stage, this person is so countercultural that they're assassinated, they die. In the meantime, they've gathered a bunch of uh, disciples who are really fascinated by the teaching, even though they don't understand it for the main part. You know, they're, they're tending to unpack it literally. So the third stage is there's some kind of a community left after the prophet has died. The fourth stage is it now morphs into an organization. And the fifth stage is there's some kind of a self-appointed oligarchy that rises to the top and takes control of the organization. And then they insist on orthodoxy for the believers, and they'll punish you with inquisitions if you deviate into heterodoxy or you know heresy of any kind. And then if it becomes powerful enough, they start inquisitions and crusades against the outsiders. You know, so you're going full circle, and then some stage you get a new prophet within the system. Like in the 1200s, you had um, a Francis of Assisi and a Dominic, and there was Dominic trying to call us back, you know, to the teachings of the master himself. You know, so he's starting a new renewal movement. But that was in the 1200s. By the 1400s, the group that, that Francis had formed, the Franciscans, are in charge of the Inquisition. They're literally pulling people limb from limb because they're not believing correctly. And so the big difference is that religion is not prepared, you know, to uh, listen to the people in the pews. That religion is a way in which the community, you know, uh, support each other in their search for truth and challenge each other in their belief systems. But they're not allowed to do that. And so what you get basically is almost like a cult with robots saying, yes, I believe, credo and unum deum. You know, the Nicene Creed, tell me what to believe, and I'll believe in it. And so you this kind of diversion in the uh, Middle Ages between what was called credo ut intelligam, I believe in order that I may understand, on the one hand, and the other hand, intelligo ut credam, I understand in order that I may believe. And so that's the first kind of bifurcation point between science and, and religion. One group insisting you have to believe first, and then you'll understand. And the other saying, no, I need to understand first, and then I can believe. And that gap has widened with Descartes down to our modern times where they're not even talking to each other until I believe the mysticists are bringing that back together. Now, spirituality, on the other hand, is a person, you know, identifying their core essence, which is a bite-sized piece of God, you know, where spirits and spacesuits, and ipso facto identifying the same characteristic of all sentient beings, you know, whether we're talking about grasshoppers, avatars, angelic beings, or humans that everything is kind of a word of God made flesh. So I love this passage in the prologue of John's gospel, where it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, 
and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was made nothing that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, Christianity claims that that only happened once, that the second person of the Blessed Trinity incarnated as Jesus of Nazareth, you know, and so the Word became flesh. I believe that that's true of everything in the phenomenological realms, that everything is a Word of God made flesh. And so the ability to recognize that and to kind of uh, relate to that is what I think Hinduism means when it says, Namaste. The divine in me recognizes and honors the divine in you. And for the person who is deeply mystical, they can make that namaste to an oak tree or a bunny rabbit or a Mother Teresa. And in some senses, the only difference between these manifestations of source is the level of self-awareness of the individual organism. Obviously, a frog is not going to have the same level of self-awareness you know, as Mother Teresa had, insofar as he's not recognizing he's a bite-sized piece of God. Even, but his instinct is helping him to live out, you know, his incarnational purpose. And so spirituality then for me is moving along those three axes into the realization that somebody who has understood who they are, ipso facto understands who everybody else is. And so I had this powerful vision many, many years ago. I saw souls standing in front of God and volunteering for incarnation. And this one great soul, you know, that I call Gaia, volunteered and said to God, send me to that third rock from the sun in that solar system, and I'll start breeding life there. And I'll breed life and life proper species, which is capable of recognizing its own divinity and ipso facto, the divinity of all other beings with which it shares the planet. And it spent, we spent 4.6 billion years. And then we have, we're on the precipice of that with the arrival of Homo sapiens sapiens. The question is, will we disintegrate into Homo sociopathicus and destroy the experiment, or will we move on and recognize that we are indeed bite-sized pieces of God, and so is everything else, and treat each other and everything else, every sentient being in the cosmos accordingly. It's really interesting to hear you say that, because I talk telepathically to trees and plants and bugs and animals. I scan people's pets all the time. Last night on my show, I had several callers and Fluffy was sick. Does does I had a, a woman whose dog Chewbacca, and I'm picturing this big husky, this big hairy dog. It was a Yorkie, was lost. And she went to know if Chewbacca was still alive. Well, Chewbacca, I saw Chewbacca get picked up by a hawk. God only knows what happened, but wow. Chewbacca's spirit was around wow. this woman who was calling into my phone or into my show. That was just hilarious, that that name. Wow. But when I have bugs in my house, I'll talk to them. I'll say, okay, buddy, just give me a second. I'm just going to let you outside so much. And I do it so much that my, mm-hmm. my husband, Tim, bought me this device called a, what's it called? Oh, I think of it. And it's a bugzooka. A bugzooka. <laughs> and it's got this long tube on it. And it's got this thing that you cock that suction. And I put it over the bug and then I hit the trigger and it sucks it into this little oh. container. And then I unscrew it and I let the bug go. <laughs> and he's he just thinks I'm nuts. So does my son, because I never kill bugs. I always mm. just let them go. I figure we're in their environment. We're the ones that are encroaching. But I talk to them. While they're and they answer me, they thank me. It's really fascinating. So I agree with you as far as you know that everything is made into flesh, whether it's cockroach flesh or whether it's you know a tree or a or a person or whatever. So I'm with you on that. 
Do you think that organized religion is necessary at this stage of the game? What, what purpose does it serve? You said community earlier. And I know that the the numbers of churchgoers are really waning. Right. I know Europe is yep. is very much so. And I agree with you on that it serves a purpose. I always say I'm grateful that I was raised Catholic because I was taught at a very young age about angels and saints and spirits and stuff like that. Even at my age now, at 63, I can recite the guardian angel prayer that I said every night growing up. So it gave me that foundation to believe, okay, well, I guess it's just a thing because that's what they all talk about. So is it still necessary? I think it serves a very interesting purpose once it knows what its purpose is. But very typically, it, it, the, uh, the institutionalized churches do not know what their purpose is. Their purpose is to kind of uh, help form community because people need community. And we certainly discovered that during the, 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 the shutdowns with the pandemic. People need face-to-face encounters. But it should be a community which is helping people, as I say, uh, helping them in their search for truth and also challenging them on their belief systems, not indoctrinating them with particular kinds of dogmatic assertions. But the organizational churches don't get that that there should be places which are teaching meditation to help people you know, individually become Gnostics in the sense that Gnosis is personal experiences of the divine. And the function of the churches should be to kind of inculcate that or train people how to do that and then bring them together to create liturgies and beautiful ritual which should alter their states of consciousness so that you know, kind of automatically they're experiencing kind of, you know, kind of mystical states. And a really good liturgy High Mass, for instance, which is appealing, you know, the incense to the nose and the kind of the uh, stained glass windows to the eyes and the Gregorian chant to the ear and the, the, even the communion to the uh, kind of olfactory and kind of gustatory things. It should be it, uh, kind of addressing all of this, the entire sensorium to get us into a, a state of consciousness where we've transcended the ego. But it's not doing that. You know, it has dead ritual, you know, symbols of symbols of symbols. They're not symbols of reality anymore. They're only symbols of symbols of symbols. So I differentiate between what I call sign, symbol, and sacrament, properly understood. A sign is one physical reality standing for another physical reality. So a road sign is a piece of metal with paint in it that tells you that, you know, in five minutes more, you're going to meet a junction to your left, a piece of tarmac atom. So it's one physical thing standing for another physical thing. A symbol is different. A symbol has one foot in physicality and the other foot in the mystical. So, for instance, a hug or a kiss is a symbol. So it's a hug. You're giving somebody, embracing somebody, but it's telling you, I love you or I miss you or you're my friend or whatever. And so it has one foot in the mystical and the other in the physical. And then a sacrament is a unique group of symbols that actually cause to happen that which they signify. And therefore, it is the intentionality and the mindset of the kind of the participants that create that mindset. So I've used this example many times. If I'm giving out communion at the end of Mass, you know, and two people come up for communion, one is a very, very devout person, and they got their hands joined, and this is the old days, really, really, they realize what's happening. This is an encounter with, with, with Christ. And they stick out their tongue, and I put a piece of bread in their tongue. And they go back down to their pew, and they've had a real encounter with Jesus. They've, been a real, they've had a real sacrament. They've really understood what it was about, and they've transcended time and space. A kid comes up with a wad of chewing gum in his mouth. I chew on his tongue. He's got chewing gum on one side, and I put Jesus on the other side. 
and he goes back down to his pew. What has he gone back with? He's gone back with a piece of chewing gum and a piece of lifeless bread. It's not a sacrament because it's the mindset of the recipient and the, the, the priest that's creating the divine encounter. So I looked then at, is the church or is religion creating just dead signs or kind of meaningless symbols of symbols of symbols rather than just real symbols? Are, are there really sacraments? Are they creating the kinds of mindset and soul set that are allowing the individual participants to soar you know, and to self become aware of a self, a self much, much higher than the ego, you know, into the soul self and the source self? And in that instance, then, the church is performing a very important ritual. But it has long lost sight of those. It's creating meaningless symbols and meaningless ritual and dogma and institutionalized kind of uh, uh, inquisitions and communications. So they've lost their purpose, mainly. Interesting point, because I go to Mass most Sundays. I'm a practicing Catholic. And during Mass, during the consecration, the part where this is my body, the priest says this, this is my blood. I see my eyes are closed. I'm sure people think I'm very reverent. That's not the case. I'm watching the show. And here's what I see in my mind's eye. I see a laser of light come down on the altar when the priest holds up the communion you know, this is my body. There's this arc of light that goes out over the congregation. Same thing with the chalice. Same thing with the last prayer. When the priest holds his hands up, there's this arc of light that goes out over the congregation. I've been to several healing services at the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament, which is about an hour and a half north of me in a town called Hansville, Alabama. was founded by a a sister um, who who's just was Mother Angelica was her name, and she founded this order of nuns and all this other stuff. And I, when my father was alive, I took him there a couple of times for healing services, and I've been there another couple of times. Every time I'm in that healing service in the undercroft of the basilica, I see tongues of fire on everybody's heads, wow. like on Pentecost. And I and so I tell people before I take them up there, I said, there's some serious mojo going on up there. <laughs> you need to go up there and get a healing because I can see it telepathically. Mm-hmm. And then the third example, and these are all sacramental kind of things that you're to which you're referring. And then the third one is whenever I'm at a wedding, I see a dome of light come down over the bride and groom. And it reminds me of one of those old fashioned mantle clocks that you have the inner workings of the clock and it's got a dome glass dome on top of it. I have my Mima's and it was on her mantle for, I don't know, a hundred years. And because she lived to be almost a hundred. And so there's definitely an energy. Absolutely. That comes down. And I think that's where the Jewish chuppah comes from. I believe that back in the day that that the regular people could see all of this stuff telepathically. We all have the ability. And so I believe that's where the chuppah, which is for those of you listening that don't know what I'm talking about, it's they in the olden days, they'd put a sheet, tie some kind of a piece of fabric onto four sticks or poles and hold it up over the bride and groom. Now, a lot of times it's in the form of a gazebo or a, or a floral something, but in Jewish weddings, they always stand under a huppah. 
And I think that's where I, I believe, I don't just think, I believe that's where that comes from. When I go to mass in different countries, I see different things. One example is I was in Turks and Caicos and I went to a Creole mass there in Creole language. And I saw this arch of rainbow colors come up during the consecration and go up over the whole congregation. And it was the lights were, or the colors, it was moving. You know, it was like, it, it wasn't pulsing, but it had a movement to it. And then at the final prayer, I watched it fall down, like opening wow. of a clamshell. So wow. it's always fun to go to mass in different countries because I see different things um, with the energy. So there's definitely energy that's going on. I live in the deep South. I go to a Southern Baptist church. They got gospel music going. Mm-hmm. Holy mother. <laughs> that place is <laughs> rocking. You can feel the spirit. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, when that happens, yeah. speaking of Holy Mother, I wanted to run this by you and see what your thoughts are on this. Uh, dear friends of mine, Pretty to Finn and Clark Strand wrote a book called The Way of the Rose, and it's oh. about the rosary. And oh, they okay. have a an organization of, I think it's 40 or 50,000 people around the world from all denominations, all walks of life. And oh. they say the rosary together. Oh. It's it's um, wayoftherose.org is their website. And I was talking with them recently, and Clark was saying that when they released that book, that they probably had 100 people in the audience. And he asked, how many of you have um, encountered or talked to or seen the Virgin Mary? And every pretty much every hand in the room went off. Wow. Oh, my God. Because she visits him a lot. I've seen the Virgin Mary several times, and I talk about it in my shows and stuff. But my question to you on that is, do you think that most people have encounters with spirit, whether it be the Virgin Mary or Elvis or whomever, and they just don't talk about it? Most of us have busy lives and... We know that we're not getting the nutrients and the vitamins and the minerals that we need. So I'm always looking for easy ways to ingest them. I found one. It's called Beam Minerals. And what I find is that most of us don't get enough potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Those are the big three. And so what Beam Minerals does is it's put all these minerals in a liquid form that's easy to drink because it tastes like water. It's got all these important minerals and a whole bunch of other ones. And I find that they're really helpful. They save me time. They're easy to take. And I suggest that you give them a try. Go to Beam Minerals, B as in boy, E-A-M, minerals, plural, dot com, and use the code Julie Ryan, altogether, no space, at checkout, and you'll get 20% off your order. That's Beam Minerals, B-E-A-M, minerals.com, and use Julie Ryan at checkout, and you'll get a 20% discount. Give it a try and let me know what you think. Do you think that most people have encounters with spirit, whether it be the Virgin Mary or Elvis or whomever, and they just don't talk about it? Yes. I think it's much more widespread than there's given credit for. Because we're bathing in that kind of energy, literally from, I believe, and listening to your book as well, I'm totally convinced that at every birth, 
there's a, a total coterie of angels, you know, ancestors, mentor figures, guides that are ushering the little child in. And so, for instance, at the birth of Jesus, it's not just Mary and Joseph and the donkey and a few sheep. You know, we read about angels visiting. We read about shepherds coming. We read about the wise men arriving. So for me, that the kind of symbolic of the fact that the birth of every one of us, even the lowliest of us, is, is kind of accompanied by this heavenly entourage. And the very same thing, and I picked this up very strongly in your book, the very same thing as we're exiting, as we're dying, that there's this extraordinary group of people who are here to escort us to the other side. But I think that is true that uh, throughout life, you know, it's not that they, they, they arrive at birth and then they say, well, here you see you when you're, when you're dying and come back at death, but that they're present and available. And so a lot of it has to do with the mindset and the soul set of the individual people and how communities create the energies of ritual that make it much more uh, possible for those kind of energies to manifest to the sensorium. Because those energies, in some senses, they have to, to kind of come down levels of density, almost like a chakra system, you know, from uh, the Brahma right down to Atman, down to the psychic self, to the mental self, to the astral level, to the etheric level, to the physical level. It's like that they have to cascade down using transformers, you know, to uh, dumb down the energy in order to be able to appear at the density at which we live. Uh, and so uh, some people have that ability, obviously, to invite that process, and some rituals have the ability to invite that process. And that, for me, then, is the real function of a real sacrament as a sign from just a symbol. And when you tell me that you've seen this being manifested in different kinds of ways by different kinds of ritual, that makes perfect sense to me. It's like, you know, if you play a tune on five different instruments, you take a trombone or a tin whistle or an accordion or a drum and play the same tune, it's going to sound very different on different instruments. And so the ritual is the instrument, you know, that um, ushers in our midwife the particular kind of apparition and the modality under which you encounter it. I agree. Is ordination a transfer of energy? I think it is, but I think um, it's been hijacked. And so, for instance, let me make two points about that, Julie. When I look at the story of Pentecost, um, we think Pentecost happens 50 days after resurrection. Because that's Luke's account. Luke says in his gospel that uh, Jesus rises from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. 40 days later, he ascends as the ascension. And then in his Acts of the Apostles, 10 days later is the Pentecost event. You look at the gospel of John, and in John's account, resurrection and Pentecost happen on the same day. So we're told that the apostles are hiding in the upstairs room, their door is locked, and suddenly Jesus appears to them the day of resurrection, and he says, Shalom Aleichem peace be with you. And they're cowering. The last time they saw this guy, they abandoned him. You know, Peter said he didn't even know who the guy was, never met him in his life. Judas betrayed him, and the others ran. So they think he's going to come in with the whip. He says, no, no, no. Shalom Aleichem. Peace I leave with you. And then John says, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So there's Pentecost right there. But what was the first thing he said after that? He said, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And the Catholic Church gloms onto this and says, oh, yes, only priests have the ability to bind or to loose. He's not saying that at all. He's saying the first gift of the Spirit, and in fact, the first injunction of Spirit is that if you forgive people, everybody is set free. You're set free of carrying the burden of anger. They're set free from the burden of guilt or whatever. Society is set free. If you bind, you're carrying that load. You're still bound, and they're bound because they feel your anger. 
So it has nothing got to do with priests, you know, saying, Ego te absolvo becatis tuis. It's saying, if you're truly received the Spirit, you realize that when you forgive, you lift the burden from everybody. And if you refuse to give, nobody is kind of, the burden is left from nobody. So that's the first thing I say then that, in some senses, that we have to understand what the sacrament confers and what uh, what, it's, what it's about. And so forgiveness then becomes really, really important. It's the keystone. Forgiveness is basically what it's, what it's about. And so forgiveness is not condoning what somebody said or, you know, excusing what they said, but it's refusing to carry the burden of what they laid upon, upon me. Interesting. I, when my, back to my dad, when my dad was dying, he was in the ICU and I would do the night shift. And so the last night of his life, I called one of his buddies who was in the seminary with him and lived in Columbus, Ohio with him. And he had long, his name was Jim, and he had long left the priesthood and was married and had kids and, you know, that kind of thing. And I said, my, we're going to take my dad off the ventilator in the morning. If you want to see him, come on down. I'm just here. And so he came down at about 11 o'clock at night. And he and so we talked and my dad was on a ventilator, but sound is the last thing to go. You know, when somebody dies, they can hear hearing, uh, hearing more so than sound. And he did a blessing of my dad. And I said, you still have the power, don't you? Even though he hadn't been a priest in like 30 years. He said, you bet I do. And when, and so of course my eyes were closed because I wanted to see what was going on. And I could see the transfer of energy from his hand to my dad. So I guess my question about that is, is it as much of a transfer of energy equaling the belief? Yes. Because when I teach my classes and I've had hundreds of people go through my classes, I tell them it's. 90% a transfer of energy, it's 10% technique. It's me transferring the level of vibration, the frequencies that I use to do all the work that I do to you. And then there's 10% of its technique. How does that relate to the ordination thing? And based on what I saw with Jim, my dad's friend, he hadn't lost it, even though he hadn't been a priest for 30 years. All right. That's a great question, Julie. And so one of the things I say to uh, my congregation every Sunday, just before we begin the offertory of the Mass, I say to them, every one of you is a priest by virtue of your by virtue of your incarnation. So incarnation confers ordination. So I invite them, if you've got the elements in your home, bread and wine, uh, offer them, consecrate them, and receive communion. And I remind them throughout the Mass. Now, having said that, obviously then, there are some people who are the focal point and the recipients of the prayers and the blessings and the intentions of a whole, you know, lineage of priesthood, you know, and some and that energy is flowing through. So the official ordination in some senses is kind of attaching to that to that flow. And then you have the kind of the the kind of the attention of a congregation focused on the individual minister or priest or whatever. And so there are like three sources of power or three sources of energy and a confluence in a particular, you know, like your friend Jim at this stage. So he's the recipient of that hierarchical kind of um, lineage of energy. He's also the fact that in the time he was a priest, he was the recipient of all of that expectation that this is what he would do. And that's his own intentionality, that he's still connected to that power and regards himself as a conduit of divine mercy. Now, I see you, I see you the very same in the extraordinary abilities that you have. 
that you're part of a lineage of wise women in some ways. You're part of a lineage of psychic abilities. Are you also somebody who's put a lot of uh, training and time into developing this skill set? And so it's like any other skill set, you know, everybody can sing, but never, not everybody is going to be a Caruso. You know, everybody can, you know, uh, uh, throw a basketball, but not everybody's going to be kind of Michael Jordan. So everybody has some level of intuition, but not everybody's going to become a Julie Ryan as far as psychic abilities are concerned. So I see this great confluence of several kind of from several origins kind of beaming in on the individual who's choosing to do this, you know, professionally. So what I say to my own congregation is that ministry demands four factors. The first thing is there's a need in the community. The second thing is there's a volunteer who says, you know, you know, I'll address that need in the community. The third thing is that person is given the training, you know, to make them suitable to deliver the ministry. And the fourth is they're commissioned by the community to act in that capacity on their behalf. And if you've got those four conditions, then you have a minister, whether the, the ministry that's needed is a priest or a bishop or a lector or a communion minister or a psychic or a healer, whatever it is. If those four pieces come together, then you have a priest, a minister, and you've got ordination. I love that answer. Is there a best way to pray? Wow, that's beautiful. And so I think, you know, um, there's a very interesting difference between prayer and meditation. That prayer is the imminence of God addressing the transcendence of God. So the God manifested through human beings or whatever. So that's where the individual person initiates the, the dialogue. So it's the immanence, you know, the manifestation of God addressing the transcendence of God. Whereas meditation is the transcendence of God initiating the dialogue with the immanence of God. So meditation is more where we listen and allow God to do the talking. And prayer is where God is silent and allows us to do the talking. And therefore, the best kind of prayer, you know, I think is the prayer that Jesus taught us, not just the Our Father, but when, when he said, for instance, Philip at the Last Supper, he got 24 hours to live and they still don't know what he's doing. And Philip says to him, you're always talking about the Father. You know, do us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, me. Hey, Philip, I've been with you for three years and you still don't realize if you see me, you see the Father? I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. I am in you, and you are in me. So all prayer is just starts with the realization that I'm not this kind of mock beating my breast and saying, you know, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, but listen to me anyway. It's saying, here's a bite-sized piece of God, you know, addressing the ultimate source of my divinity. And so I'm initiating the conversation. And so that realization, that really all prayer is simply God talking to herself. Yeah? But it's initiated by a manifestation, whereas in meditation, it's initiated by the transcendent aspect of it. So what's the best way to pray? The best way to pray is to realize that I'm not a sinner. You know, I am uh, uh, a word of God made flesh, you know, you know, calling home. Yeah. So I love that last statement of Christ on the cross. Uh, the, last, uh, the last of the seven words where he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I have a different translation for that. I say, Abba. Hug me, that that's what it's about. Mission accomplished, hug me. And then that's the relationship we're meant to have. But that the churches have emphasized sin you know, and repentance. You know, think about the word repentance in Greek, metanoia, you know, which literally is, means to transcend the mind, is to get out of rational thinking and get into the heart. And so when I beat my breast, it's not to say, you know, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. It's like, uh, it's like the, the paddles that they put on somebody who's had a heart attack. I'm trying to wake my heart up again. I'm trying to reconnect with my soul self. 
and my heart self. And that's what it's about. It's not I'm a sinner. It's wake up, wake up, dude. You've been asleep in there. I love that. You've done research on the efficacy of prayer. I'd love to hear about that. Okay. What yeah. What are your findings yeah. in your research? So this was, when I, when I did it, it was 1992, 1993. And at that stage, it was the largest um, experimental control, double-blinded experiment on prayer, on uh, the psychological well-being of human subjects. So I had um, 517 people involved in a study. And uh, I brought them all in. You know, I did a few lectures on what prayer consisted of. And we had 90 volunteers, who I call agents, who were prepared to pray for 15 minutes every day for 12 weeks for a designated group of people. And I gave each of them a sheet with uh, the photographs of nine people whom I called the subjects. And they were to pray every day for 15 minutes for these nine people. And I gave them a prayer log so they could record how faithful they had been to the practice. And they mailed that back to me every week. So I could tell with extraordinary specificity how much prayer any individual got and how much prayer any of the agents did. And so I, the people doing the praying, I call the agents. The people getting the prayer, I call the subject. And I randomly assigned the subject into three groups, uh, two experimental groups and one control group. And then this, uh, everybody was photographed, head and shoulders, and everybody underwent a battery of psychological tests, mainly self-esteem, trait anxiety, state anxiety, profile of mood states, you know. And so I pre-tested everybody. And when it was finished, I post-tested everybody as well. And then did a statistical analysis of the difference between pre and post. And the single most fascinating result was that the agents benefited even more spectacularly than the subjects who were being prayed for. That the exercise, the altruistic, compassionate exercise of devoting 15 minutes every day to pray for other people really affected the, the people doing the praying, their self-esteem, anxiety, and depression levels, you know, much more uh, dramatically even than the people who were being prayed for. But on all, I had 11 measures that I was testing, and there was um, significant improvement, you know, if you used to, to use kind of statistical language, at P to the power of 10 to the power of minus six values, which means the probability of this happening by chance was literally, literally, statistically, less than one in a million. 10 to the power of six is a million. And so it was a really, really powerful exercise. Really, really powerful. And it's obvious why you were led to get a degree in math, mathematics. <laughs> And then go get that PhD so you know how to do all the research stuff. And then you got the psychology thing in there too. And then you got the priest thing in there with the prayer. My goodness, it's fun <laughs> listening to you talk because I can see how you were led through all of these different places to be able to talk about confluence, to have all that come together, to be able to put that together. Interestingly enough, and and I know you've read my book, Angelic Attendance, when I see a lot of prayer being said, or I know there's a lot of prayer being said for somebody, especially when they're having surgery, there's always a correlation between the number of spirits that are in the operating room with them than those who aren't having prayer said for them. And I've seen it, of course, always in my mind's eye, but as an inventor of surgical devices sold throughout the world, I was in surgeries a lot in my career of 30 years. And so I would scan the room while I was in there, you know, doing my regular work stuff. And then and and then I can do it telepathically too. And every time I see a boatload of spirits in there 
providing support from heaven, you know, from whatever you want to call it, from non-physical, there is always a bunch of prayer being said for the person. Why is that, do you think? What do you think is going on there? I think, you know, in some senses, uh, the cosmos is a, is, a, is a jigsaw puzzle. You know, one of the things you realize when you unpack a jigsaw puzzle, you put all the pieces out onto the table. The first thing you have to realize is, you know, you have to turn right side up. Otherwise, you're just seeing cardboard, you know, brown cardboard. So you have to make an act of faith that every piece that's there is necessary and every piece that's necessary is there. You're not going to finish the jigsaw puzzle and find this big gap and you've no pieces to put in there. And you're not going to wind up with you know, 35 extra pieces when you complete it. So everything with which we're born is necessary and everything that's necessary we're born with. And part of that, you know, what we're born with is this kind of, this uh, choir, this community, this cosmic community of light beings. And we ourselves are light beings that have, you know, agreed to a densification process where we appear in these physical forms vibrating between, you know, 400 and 700 nanometers between infrared and ultraviolet. So we're these dense, dense spacesuits, but we are basically light beings. So the entire jigsaw puzzle is interested in completing it they want all the pieces to go back into the places in which they belong so that they reflect the picture which is on the box. And the picture on the box is the face of God. So when we... When we complete the puzzle, God is complete. So why, are, what... you, why are you getting emotional? Because I can feel it. I can feel it. What are you feeling? I'm feeling, you know, almost like a God's eye view. It's like grandmother God beaming lovingly at her children and saying, keep going, guys. You keep putting the pieces in place. And finally, you'll make the transition. You'll find out that only God exists and only love is real. So she's like beaming down and saying, keep going. And you know, here are all the other people who are helping to put pieces of the puzzle together. And so they're there at all the significant times of our lives particularly our coming into incarnation and our leaving incarnation, but at any other important phase of our lives, they're there all the time. And they're light beings, as are we, who have forgotten that we are light beings. I agree. Back to the surgery example, there's always the patient's guardian angel over the head of anesthesia. And it and it and it's angel energy it just looks to me like angel statues, because that's how I was taught angels look somebody that wasn't raised in the same culture, it may just look like a blob of a colored energy. And then there are always surgeon spirits over the head of the surgeon that are advising the surgeon. So I love your analogy of the pieces of the puzzle from this dense reality and also the spirit reality all working together to help the person who's having the surgery. Great example. Is there a difference between imagination and fantasy? Huge difference. Huge difference, Julie. So fantasy is the ability to make up stuff that's not real. Imagination is the ability to volitionally shift my state of consciousness, enter into different dimensions, interact with entities and energies who reside in those dimensions, uh, talk with them, learn from them, and then come back down you know, and cross-fertilize it with this waking state. And so imagination is the single most important faculty of a child, a prophet, a real scientist, a mystic, you know, and an artist. 
They are the people who understand what imagination is about. Imagination is not about fantasy, making up stuff that's not real. No, absolutely not. And the great scientists realize that, uh, that that's their most important gift. There's a great story told about uh, Einstein when he was being kind of seduced to come to uh, to um, uh, was it Princeton way way back in the in the 30s. And the guy who's trying to kind of bring him over here has had you know experiences of bringing many other great scientists in the past. So he says to him, uh, uh, Doctor Einstein. Uh, I, I'll set up a laboratory for you. Um, what do you need in your laboratory? And Einstein says, well, I'm going to need a table and a chair and um, a lot of writing material uh, and um, and a whole bunch of pencils. And the guy is saying, and, and the equipment? No, no, that's it. And that's all he needed because his imagination was his laboratory. He would sit on a photon of light and travel off into the universe at the speed of light and find out what's happening to time and space. And so his imagination was his laboratory. And the same thing is true. There's a big difference, you know, between the kind of the, the extraordinary scientists who invent stuff and then uh, the engineers who bring that to kind of the technology. They're both very important. But the dreaming is done mainly by the, uh, the mystical scientists. And then, you know, you have to walk that into, you know, things that work like um, surgical uh, kind of equipment in your in your own case. But uh, obviously, it seems to me that you had both, that your imagination is what gave you the ideas, you know, and then somehow you fabricated it and brought it to a market. But it's your imagination that created it. That's the laboratory. Exactly. Yeah, I have a degree in communication. Uh, People say, well, how's that work, that you're an inventor of surgical devices? And I say, well, I got the ideas. I knew what needed to be done. And then I hired engineers who could draw up what my ideas were. I didn't need to know engineering. And then I hired people who were manufacturing experts and I can read and I can listen. And so that's how it all came together. Interesting. The interesting, uh, fun, quick story on Einstein. In one of my classes, I had a guy who was an engineer and he was working on some algorithm and he wanted Einstein's input. So I always say that our heads are satellite dishes and we can talk to any spirit that we want, whether we knew them or not. So we pulled Einstein in and Einstein went through the equation with him and helped him figure out what the answer was. And all the rest of us, you know, all the other students in the class and, and I, we were, we were, me, we were all going, Holy Moses, you know, we got Einstein here. And and he came up with the solution to whatever it was that he was trying to figure out. And it was just so funny because he goes, well, you know, I'd like to talk to Einstein. And so well, let's bring him in. So I say, it doesn't matter who you want to talk to, whether you knew him or not. You just think of them and it connects your satellite dish head to their frequency. Do facts make something through? No, no. There's a huge difference as well between um, something could be factual but not true, and something could be true but not factual. So factoids, you know, facts are kind of just are, are kind of generated by kind of our sensorium and the physical universe, whereas truth is generated through wisdom and through the kind of the soul self. So my favorite example of that is, you know, so for instance, it's a fact that the Dow Jones is whatever it is today. Now is that radically transformative? Absolutely not. So my definition of truth is that. Something is true if it transforms me and aligns me with God. And something is ultimate truth if it transforms me radically and aligns me permanently with God. 
And so by that definition, then something could be uh, fictional but true and factual and not true. And my favorite example to give is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So here's Jesus being asked the question, who is my neighbor? And like Jesus, typically, he'll answer with a parable. He says, there was a certain man going down from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he fell among robbers. He got mugged and left for dead at the side of the road. And a few hours later, there's a priest in the temple going down, and he sees this fellow Jew lying at the side of the road dying, and he ignores him because it was verboten for a priest to touch a dead body. He couldn't go back into the temple if he did. So he passes on. A few hours later, there's a Levite going down. <clears throat> and the Levites were like the temple sacristans. He's going down. <clears throat> he sees a fellow Jew dying, ignores him, and keeps going. And then comes the Samaritan. And the Samaritans are deadly, deadly enemies to the, to the Hebrews at that stage. This Samaritan man sees a guy dying, a Jew, picks him up, attends to him, pours oil to cauterize his wounds, takes him on his own donkey, brings him down to Jericho, checks into a hotel, pays the bill and says to the, the manager, I need to go away for a few days. Please look after him. I'll pick up the tab when I come back. Now, there's a, if you were a reporter from the um, Jerusalem Post <clears throat> and you said, there's something fishy about this story. I don't believe that. And you go to the temple and you knock on the door and the high priest comes out and you said, I've heard this story. Did any of you guys go down to Jericho in the last week? And he goes in, Any guys, anybody here go down to Jericho in the last week? No, 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 no. No, there was nobody. And he goes over to the Levites and asks the same question. Levites, no, 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 no. He goes down to Jericho. There's only six, six inns in Jericho. And he goes down to each inn and says, did this thing happen? Did somebody come into your inn you know, a week ago with such and such a story? Absolutely not. I would have remembered it. You know, a Samaritan carrying a Jew in here? I don't remember that one. Absolutely not. And you go back to Jesus and says, that was a damn lie. It never happened. So maybe it didn't. Was it true? It was absolutely true because anybody who heard that story was transformed. They really understood for the first time, what does neighbor mean? Neighbor is not a genetic connection. It's not the guy at the other side of the white picket fence. It is any sentient being, particularly those in distress. So yes, something can be fictional and true and something can be factual and not true. Okay. Well, a couple more questions. Sure. Before I let you go, is the Bible intended to be taken literally? And I think that's a great piggyback question on your story that you just told about the Good Samaritan. Right. Absolutely not. And so at the last book I wrote, which is called Setting God Free, <clears throat> in it, I actually put God on trial for crimes against humanity. And I conducted uh, an entire trial with um, a, a prosecution who had an archaeologist involved, a Bible scholar, a Jungian analyst and a kind of um, um, uh, a lawyer looking at the covenant. And then at the side of the defense, another archaeologist, a mythologist, a Jungian analyst. And we went through the entire trial. And the conclusion was that uh, the God that's been foisted on us is a kind of a projected image of the human shadow. And that God was not guilty of any of these crimes because the, the God that comes through, particularly in the Pentateuch, is the greatest serial killer of all time and the greatest mass murderer of all time. And so we can't take the Bible is mythology for the main part. And we have to understand what mythology means. Mythology is the archive wisdom of a culture, which cannot be taken literally. Stories have a parabolic meaning and a proverbial meaning. They have to be unpacked, not at an intellectual level, but at the level of soul. And that's why Jesus really annoyed his audiences again and again and again. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, on two occasions, He's harassed by the, 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 his interlocutors who say, 
why are you always talking with these these stories? You know, talk philosophy to us, or talk science to us, or talk theology to us. Always this mishegas, always these stories. Why are you talking stories and parables? And he gave two different answers. The first time he said, "I speak in, in parables so that seeing you may see, but not understand; hearing you may hear, but not comprehend." Now, why would he be speaking in a way that they could see and hear, but not understand or comprehend? Because he's saying to them, you have to go transrational, not irrational, transrational. You have to be listening at a different level of yourself. You have to be listening at the level of soul. And when you do that, you go transrational, you're gone beyond reason. You're gone transpersonal, you're not identifying with the ego. You're gone transpatial, you're not locked into this little spacesuit of yourself. You know, I uh, saw... So, and in that way, you can unpack what I'm telling you because it is your soul that's grokking it. The second time he was asked in the same chapter, he said, I speak in parables so that I may reveal things which have been hidden since the foundation of the world. In other words, there are some truths that can only be articulated in some kind of art format. Story, proverb, dance, music. Uh, these are the only ways you can express the truth. And so we're stuck, you know, with a book that was written over the first part of the Bible is written about 950 BC. The last part is written about 400 BC. So a 550 year span with hundreds of authors with radically different forms of literature. And the example I give, if you take a Sunday newspaper and you take the different sections, there's a gardening section, there's a movie section, there's a foreign news section, there's a finance section. You can't read each section of the newspaper with the same mindset. Unconsciously, you're shifting mindsets as you go from cartoons you know, to uh, foreign news. You're doing it unconsciously, but automatically. But people think that you can pick up the Bible, go to any part of it, read any part of it, and understand it literally, not realizing there are historical books, there's poetry, there's fiction, there's mythology, there are letters, there are theology, there's, there's uh, ritual, You know, there's uh, riddles in it. They're all totally different forms of literature written by hundreds of different people and redacted many, many, many times. And so you can't just take it literally. What you can say about it is, it is the archived wisdom of a particular people at various stages of their cultural evolution dealing with the vicissitude of life on planet Earth and trying to come up with explanations for why stuff is happening to them, like we do in our times. In our times, well, we're, trying to, we're trying to create cosmologies that can make sense of the experiences that we're having. And so we're going to create stories. Science is only a story. Science is based on faith, like every other system. Pure mathematics, which is the queen of all the sciences, is based on the piano postulates. Five postulates without which you can't build a mathematical system. Now, at the beginning of the 20th century, mathematicians and scientists believe we're getting to a place where we don't need any postulates. We can build ex nihilo, a totally consistent system that can be built from the ground up. And then came a brilliant mathematician. A guy called Kurt Gödel, an Austrian mathematician in 1931, that came up with the what he called the incompleteness theorem, which proved that it is not possible to build any axiomatic system without at least one postulate that cannot ever be proven. That has to be taken on faith. So that's true of mathematics, is true of philosophy, is true of every branch of science. You cannot build anything from the ground up without assuming some at least one postulate that you cannot prove. So everything is built on faith. And so all we're doing is we got, we got a, a story system now that we call science, which is built on postulates. And if you accept the postulates, we can build a very elegant system. But it cannot be totally consistent because there are parts of it we have to take on. And you know, that's the place that 
I regard the Bible. Yeah, it's a it's a mythological journey, and there are some parts that are historical and some parts which are totally, you know, fabricated to illustrate you know a particular teaching. And so they're parabolic in nature. And when you get that, you can shift your mindset as you encounter a different genre within the book and say, okay, this is a this is a riddle. Let me see if I can unpack that. Like the book of Revelation, it's pure riddles. You know, the numbers, the three and a half appears again and again. Seven appears, 40 appears, 144 appears, 40 appears. Different colors appear, different animals appear. They're all riddles. And so you can't unpack those literally. So you have to understand, am I looking at the gardening section or the foreign news section or the financial section? So I'm going to have to shift my mindset in order to engage with this material. But I think I can open the Bible at any place, look at a particular passage and say, oh yeah, John Smith off the street can tell me exactly what that what that means without any knowledge of the time from which it came or the agenda of the writers. I've heard you use the example of you've got a neighbor that's cutting his grass on Sunday and he's working on the Sabbath. And what are you going to do? You're going to go get go round up the rest of your neighbors and you're going to figure stone out him. how you're going to stone him? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great example of that. Another one you used in your book is how old was Noah when he died? He was like <laughs> 900 years old or something. So it's interesting that uh, allegedly Noah had to sacrifice his own great-grandfather, Methuselah, who was the oldest man who ever lived, 969 years of age. He had to take mosquitoes and spitting cobras, you know, and um, you know, a, a kind of uh, snakes of all kinds into the ark and drown his, gra- his gra- great-grandfather. You know, the, the poor guy was hiding, hoping to make it to a thousand, a millennium, and Noah drowned him. What kind of a guy is going to ask you to do that? Yeah, taking the mosquitoes. Don't forget the mosquitoes. Taking the biting, the spitting cobras. We need spitting cobras. Uh, but you can't have your grandfather in here. We don't have room for him. Yeah, a riot. couple more questions. What's Christ consciousness, and is it only available to Christians? Absolutely not. Christ consciousness goes by many, many different uh, words. Self-realization is a word that Hinduism will use for it. Um, Buddha nature is a word that the Buddhists uh, will use for this. You know, the Tao, in some sense, is the word that Lao Tse uh, Tung will use for it. So every great mystical tradition has come up with the realization that when we, when we re-identify with level, higher and higher levels of ourselves, ultimately we're, we're meant to birth Christ consciousness or to or reveal it. So I, I got this, this beautiful story that Luke tells in his gospel where he said, Christ is saying, you must be compassionate as your heavenly father is compassionate. Now, uh, Jesus is speaking Aramaic, and the Aramaic word for compassion is rachamim. Uh, and rachamim means, uh, is the plural for womb. So, and the word that Jesus is using for father is abun, which doesn't really mean a kind of a male, you know, parent. It means the birthing principle of the cosmos. So here's Christ saying, you must be womb-like as the birthing principle of the cosmos is itself a womb. Now, what does a womb do? A womb can conceive, carry, and birth sequentially several times. So Christ is saying, you must be womb-like. You must keep giving birth to greater and greater versions of yourself. You start by birthing your physical body. Then you birth an ego. Then you birth a kind of an identity based on relationship. Then you birth an identity based on the job you're doing, your profession. And Christ says, keep going, keep going, keep going. You're not finished giving birth until you give birth to God. The objective of every incarnation is to give birth to God. And this is what Meister Harker said very beautifully in a Christmas homily one time. He said, 
of what use to me is it that my Savior was born of a virgin 1,300 years ago? If he's not born again in my time and in my soul, every single one of us is meant to be the mother of God. And so I believe that there was a group of people came in at the time of Jesus, Mary and the Magdalene and, and, and Mother Mary, and that they represented what I call Christ consciousness and Christa consciousness. Christa consciousness being the kind of the, the feminine articulation of God and Christ consciousness being the male articulation of, of God. And they come in as a group, as a core group, because one without the other is incomplete. So a Christ consciousness without a crystal consciousness is a com an incomplete manifestation of source. And so many, many different traditions have understood that. And so in, in other traditions, there'll be, you know, there'll be Kuan Yin or, or, or the Green Tara, you know, so our Shekhinah in Judaism, in mystical Judaism, all realizing that there is a level of identification in which there is only source. But in order to ascend to that place, there has to be a male kind of a contribution and a female contribution. And I call those Christo consciousness and Christ consciousness. Interesting. In closing, if you have one thing that you want everybody listening and watching this chat today to know, what would that be? It would be that it is incumbent upon you, the listener, whoever you are, to develop your own personal cosmology. Because most of us, our living life driven by a philosophy that has been unconsciously acquired and in any given circumstance is unconsciously accessed. So we're actually, most of us are, are just robots, you know, you know, living in this soporific state of being, being driven by an internalized philosophy uh, over which we have no control or we have no conscious knowledge. So I, I would say there are four questions you need to consider in order to develop inadequate cosmology, and then you'll build the entire structure on these four questions. What do you mean by God? I'm talking now to the listener. You know, is God some dude in the sky with a long white beard? What do you mean when you say God? Secondly, what do you mean when you say I? With whom are you identifying? Your ego, your profession, your relationship? What do you mean when you say I? Thirdly, what do you mean when you say neighbor? Are you talking about the guy who votes the same way you vote? Are you talking about the guy whose skin looks the same as your skin? What do you mean when you say neighbor? And fourthly, what is your mission? What have you come down here to do? And it's been very important that each individual take on that task of answering those four questions and then continue to upgrade it. And if you, if you articulate it correctly, it'll make your soul sing. It will also stretch you. You will also need to update it on a regular basis. You know, and so that is what I would say to you. Please develop your own personal cosmology. Put quality what, time into doing it. What's cosmology mean to you? Cosmology means the ex the kind of the explanation for the entire entire reality. So the Greeks used two words. They spelled cosmos in two ways. When they spent it with a C, it meant the physical universe, and when they spent it with a K, it meant the metaphysical universe and the physical universe. The metaphysical being the kind of the blueprint of which. The physical universe is a kind of a hard copy or a printout. So for me, then, a personal cosmology means coming up with an explanation for ultimate reality. What is your explanation for ultimate reality? And how do you find it? And I suggest that there are four questions that will get you started. All right. Wow. What a thought-provoking conversation with you today. Thank you so much for 
taking the time and answering all my questions. My husband calls me an information suck. So I'm so curious about everything. And and certainly that was on display with this conversation. So everybody, I'll be back next week with a regular show. Thank you to Father Sean for being with us this week. Sending you lots of love from sweet home, Alabama, in California too, with Father Sean. And I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan and like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.